All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers, what the fuck buddies, what the fuck Nicks? Happy New Year to you. Good morning. Happy New Year. This is it. This is the new year. Happy New Year. We'll see what happens. You know, we'll hope for the best. We'll expect not that. And we'll we'll see what we get. I mean, look, just try to have a as good a day as you can every day, right? Happy New Year is a lot of pressure. And it's a, I think it's a false expectation, but what do I know about anything? Have, have a good day. Have a good year. If this is you looking at the beginning of it, I've lost all sense of time post COVID COVID destroyed my sense of time. Every day feels like a week. Every week feels like a month. Every month feels like a year. Maybe that's just my age. So Every year, calendar year, has about 12 years for me. Maybe that's just, that's old people time. Maybe that's what happens post-60. But uh, I hope you did have a, a, a fun night last night and a safe night. And I hope that if you are looking at this as day one, as uh, some great adventure or some tremendous shift in the way you approach life and your perception of the world, congratulations. Good luck with that. Happy New Year. So today's show is interesting. Um, we have a subscription tier called The Full Marin, and we do bonus episodes uh, every week. Movie talk, we talk about episodes in the WTF archive, Ask Mark Anything episodes with listener questions, lots of stuff. We do the stuff. Uh, but also, at the end of every week, Full Marin subscribers get The Friday Show, an end-of-the-week wrap-up show. And it's hosted by WTF producer Brendan McDonald and Chris Lopresto, who worked with us at Air America back in the day. We started doing the Friday show because we got a bunch of new Full Marin subscribers when we did the Wrestling with Mark series about a year ago. A lot of them joined just for the wrestling episodes. So to keep giving them what they wanted, Brendan and Chris started talking about wrestling stuff every week. This is this is WTF's. This is this big our big secret. This is the secret show hidden in the WTF universe. But the show evolved into a weekly look behind the scenes of WTF with recaps of the latest episodes, questions from listeners, stories about guests, and whatever else Brendan and Chris feel like talking about, movies, sports, TV shows, and they take topic suggestions from Full Marin subscribers, too. So today, you all get a taste of the Friday show with this special compilation. If you want to hear all our bonus episodes, we do two every week. Sign up for the full Marin by clicking the link in the episode description or go to WTFpod.com and click on WTF+. My rescheduled show at Dynasty Typewriter, because I had some sort of bug last week, is this Thursday, January 3rd. Then I'm at Largo on Tuesday, January 9th, San Diego. I'm at the Observatory North Park. Saturday, January 27th for two shows. San Francisco at the Castro Theater on Saturday, February 3rd. Portland, Maine. I'm at the State Theater on Thursday, March 7th. Medford, Massachusetts outside Boston at the Chevalier Theater on Friday, March 8th. Providence, Rhode Island at the Strand Theater on Saturday, March 9th. Terrytown, New York at the Terrytown Music Hall on Sunday, March 10th. Atlanta, Georgia. I'm at the Buckhead Theater on Friday, March 22nd. I'll be in Austin, Texas at the Paramount Theater on Thursday, April 18th as part of the Moon Tower Comedy Festival. 
Go to WTFpod.com slash tour for tickets. And there's a lot of other shows up there that I'll announce as we get closer to them. But if you're curious, if I'll be in proximity to you, WTFpod.com slash tour is where you need to go. Okay, so look, in this collection of Friday show segments, you'll hear Chris and Brendan talk with Matt Singer, author of the book Opposable Thumbs, How Siskel and Ebert Changed Movies Forever. There's also a celebration of the 30th anniversary of The Fugitive, a story of Chris being banned for life from a grocery store, and a moment when the real world turned into pro wrestling. But the first thing you'll hear is me. From time to time, I join Brendan and Chris on the Friday show to hang out, and this is right after we all saw the movie Air. Some of the music you'll hear in this special was created by DJ Copley, a.k.a. WebPuppy45, and his production label, Batcave Bumpers. Enjoy the Friday show, friends, and Happy New Year again. I mean that. How are you, man? How's your brain? My brain, I don't know, man. It, it seems to be uh, there. It seems to be a little uh, uh, janky. Uh, well, yeah, I'm, I'm interested to know exactly what was behind this text I received at uh, 12:58 today. Uh, it yeah. just says, "Wonder if this vegan trip is fucking with my brain. Like I'm not yeah. getting enough brain food." <laughs> Why well, read? Well, that seems, that makes sense. How is that not a weird? How is that not? How is that a weird text? I want to like, know what food you think is specifically a giving you better intelligence or more connected neural pathways, and which ones yes. are harming. Yeah. Oh, I I heard that uh, the the bad cholesterol. You need some of it for your brain. <laughs> okay. So what you gonna have, all right? So you gonna have some eggs? Right. The meat cholesterol. Oh, is, right. uh, it, it goes to your brain. It's for it's brain food, and that if you get too low on that, you know you get you you get uh, loopy. I'm pretty sure a carrot counts. Like I think that I don't know. <laughs> sure, I mean if you want to believe Bugs Bunny, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, spinach is good too. Yeah. <laughs> that's for strength, Popeye. That's not for brain. <laughs> yeah, yeah that's, that's for the muscle. Yeah, <laughs> Bugs Bunny was very crafty though. He could like just talk you into putting your head in an oven. So I, I yeah. kind of believe in the carrot. No, I, I think that's probably true. I just, I don't know, man. I'm gonna go get those blood tests tomorrow, and, and we'll hammer it out. That was not your doctor today. Today was a uh, the uh, yearly or semi yearly uh, skin check. Oh, okay. Oh. Where they just look at your body. Uh, the, the guy and he says things like uh, that you don't understand to a nurse like uh, subcutaneous stinker uh, the cutaneous and then like you know just counted little things on my body yeah nothing bad I always like when they're like when they're behind you and you hear them go like hmm I'm like wait what's that hmm good hmm or bad hmm sure sure it's worse when they when they're giving a prostate exam which uh, happened. I haven't done that yet you're one of those guys. What are you, a fucking idiot? No, I'm. I'm only like forty three. When are you, yeah. go, are you supposed to get them? Forty five, right? All right. Well, All I, right. I, yeah, I think there is different, like insurance, like prostate exams, different though than colonoscopy, right? But you could get a finger up your ass anytime. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you really want one? I'll be in the city tomorrow for my annual. There's plenty of places where it's cheap. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Just ask. It's not going to be a professional opinion, but I mean, you don't know. Maybe I know a guy. Yeah, Tompkins yeah. Square Park. There's a lot of barter that goes on there. Ooh, ooh. You want to? Might want to go to a lobby of a hotel somewhere. That's <laughs> Uh, the other thing, Mark, that uh, we could talk about here briefly is that you saw the movie Air, which now the three of us have all seen. And yeah. uh, I I think is a great example for, you know, especially for people listening to this, the idea that this movie Air is about the creation of Nike sneakers, specifically around the mid-80s NBA. And it was still such a compelling, interesting movie, fun movie to watch. Like, that is a yeah. great proof of concept that you can make a movie out of anything. Well, yeah, but it, I, you know, it, I could see the story, but it, it is true. I don't know why they chose that story. It's my feeling that they're probably going to do in five different uh, sport movies like this. You know, they're going to do one about running shorts, <laughs> about rackets, <laughs> about golf balls. I'm sure you can find the story anywhere about clubs, <laughs> golf clubs. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I think we might have been in a new era of yeah. uh, of movie making. It's now brands. I want to know how our brand came to be. I I I think that's actually absolutely true because they're running out of these like this like fantasy IP stuff. There's there has not been in uh, other than like Harry Potter in the last 20 years, something that's kind of universally uh, uh, beloved as a worldwide global IP, the way comic books are and Star Wars and that. So, yeah, they're going to go to brands. Heinz Ketchup. Be a good one. Yeah. The, what is it? 57. 57. That's, that's a, you double that up. You got a whole movie. <laughs> no, no, no. We're talking television series. Yeah. <laughs> that's the number of I'd episodes. Like, I'd like to see a mini series on the history of Jägermeister. <laughs> yeah. How would that come about? Oh, but you know what is yeah. actually a really good one? They should definitely cool. do this. Stroh's beer. There's apparently it was some story okay. about like the, the family got in a war with each other over Stroh's. Yeah. Uh, and oh, really? eventually wound up selling it to Pabst and everyone lost all their money. Uh, yeah, like they should definitely make the Stroh's Brewing War movie. Yeah, I think this is a more uplifting movie than the Oxycontin uh, uh, family <laughs> The Sackler thing. one? Oh, yeah. yeah the Sackler. Sackler. Not an uplifting brand movie. <laughs> no, actually, I think, I think there's a new Tetris movie. I think we really that, yeah. are living in this brand reality where yes. brands are going to be the next movie. They're making one about the making of the BlackBerry, too. From the point of view of the BlackBerry. <laughs> that's going to be the weirdest thing. Stop touching me! <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what that one's for, either. <laughs> oh, my God. You used to have a whole thing in your act about BlackBerries, about how if you hit the T, it went up to the top. Remember that? Yeah, yeah. And he, sure. it was like, oh, you're a genius. Come back, wizard lady. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, I remember. Because <laughs> yeah. yeah, you, you were like, some, one of these days, I'm just going to see a kid flying. And I'm going to be like, dude, how do you do that? I don't know. My phone does it. <laughs> <laughs> that still could happen. <laughs> oh, more so, so than ever. Did. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I don't know. My phone does it. <laughs> one thing I thought was uh, was interesting about air was uh, literally the complete lack of villains. There's no, like, I guess, uh, other than, like, Adidas and Converse, <laughs> there's no villains in the movie. It's just like, is this guy going to make this crazy deal happen? Yeah, and, uh, well, you know, th- the guy Phil Knight, 
Is that his name? Mm-hmm. He comes off as kind of a dick a bit. But totally in the end, he's, they, con- they convert him, right? Like yeah. that's like the whole third act thing is that like he comes around. I thought what was great was just seeing how all those guys handle the job of acting. Like, you know, all of them. Yes. Ben, Matt, uh, Jason, Jason Chris yeah. Tucker, and well, Viola Davis is Viola Davis, but they all are very <laughs> different actors. Yeah. And, uh, and Matt Damon's the best. Yeah. <laughs> Especially when he's Fat Damon. Fat Damon. Fat Matt. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's well, great. Yeah. Cause he's just like, he's let himself go. He's egoless. He's just a, he plays a great schlump. And yeah, because he, he does, he's, yeah. he's a schlub with megawatt charm still. Like he can, he's yeah. never going to be able to hide what's appealing about him. Yeah. I thought it was great because, um, I, I don't know. Like, I don't really know anything about basketball and nor did uh, you have to. Yeah, no, exactly. And it was a good story and you know, it was of a time. I really, I really thought that the, you know, it can get kind of annoying when they've obviously dug up and had the set deck find all the equipment from the period. Like I'd never seen yeah. it showcased <laughs> quite so specifically. It was literally just a shameless montage here and there of things that people had. Oh, but right? I didn't think that, I thought that was one million percent story intentional. That, sure. That, no, it was no problem. Yeah. That it was like they were, he was trying to show how important brands are in this emerging culture. Of this. What was it? A Game Boy there? There was a Game Boy. There was just a scene where where he goes where he goes into uh, a Seven Eleven, and you just get every logo that you know on the shelves. Yeah, Hustler. Hustler. There was a a Wonder Bread, and it was deliberately showing you the the kind of color of the logos and that. And I felt like it all wound up paying off that when you finally see that Jordan silhouette logo, you're like, oh, that's as important as the. Ghostbusters logo or whatever it was they showed earlier on in the movie that you're like, yeah, this guy earned his money. Like it absolutely, it becomes a story about personal worth that like, and Viola Davis, you know, as, as Jordan's mom is like, yeah, you will not undervalue my son. He is worth this. God, he certainly was. It seems it, I mean, 400 million a year in passive passive income income. is like wild. It's crazy. <laughs> By the way, I, the fact that you don't know anything about basketball, I guess the very last um, moment of that movie really resonated for you because you got to find out that Michael Jordan happened to become one of the best you know, <laughs> professional basketball players wow, of all time. look at this. <laughs> I was oh. so excited for him. <laughs> <laughs> Where you're like, I don't know if he's going to do it. Yeah. I don't know. But yeah, it turned out to be true. <laughs> Everything his mom said. It's like it's like the end of uh, Walk Hard, where they're like the real Dewey Cox. <laughs> oh, yeah. the real Michael Jordan, huh? He was a real guy after all. Well, yeah, I pulled one of those horrible old man things with my with my girlfriend the other night, where I'm like, "What's too bad about the helicopter thing?" And she's like, "Um, that that was Kobe Bryant." Yeah, well, that was a, I felt like sent you on this brain spiral that you like you're concerned about because and it's like yeah, no, that, that's just a normal Bryant. thing for to do when you don't follow this stuff. And I said, Michael Jordan's still alive, and she's like, Yeah, I'm like, oh, that's good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I got fucking wood, but man, that was close. That was close. Could happen to anybody. T- tell me what you think, Chris. I bet Mark would like the last dance. 
Oh, absolutely, you would. Yeah, what's yeah. that? I like most things if they're. Yeah, if they're this was like it, can, it was it was like peak COVID, right? Like right at the time mm-hmm. where no one could go anywhere. That uh, yeah. ESPN had this eight part. Is it? I think it's eight. I think it's or I ten. Think eight or ten. Yeah, I think it's ten. Uh, a documentary about the Chicago Bulls, the Jordan era Chicago Bulls. And it was the first major documentary produced with the cooperation of everyone involved. So that's Jordan and Scottie Pippen, Phil Jackson, Dennis Rodman, everybody associated with that team. And it's really entertaining. And you, and, and probably the best so far, the best actual look at Michael Jordan and his, like the psychology of that guy. And he's not just a one of a kind basketball player. He's a one of a kind human human being you're like oh yeah right. they, they don't make people like this well what was he uh was he a good baseball player no no no, no, no terrible. terrible i mean he, he didn't he didn't he won three championships and then he retired which is still shrouded in like mystery and controversy mostly because people couldn't understand it's like jfk getting shot like people were like this had to be a conspiracy, right? It wouldn't just happen. So there's all this yeah. conspiracy about he was forced to because of a gambling problem or something, but nobody ever knows. And and it's at this point now, if there was a conspiracy, it probably would have come out. And Occam's Razor is probably where you go with this, that he just burned out. His dad had been murdered. And right. so he was just like, I'm done. I don't want to do this anymore. And I'm going to, I'm so great. I'm going to go approach something else. And he tried to make it in major league baseball. Uh, he never made it past like double a baseball in Chicago in the minors. He was bad at that too. Um, and why did so, they kill his dad? It's a, it was a carjacking that, oh. uh, you know, ter- was, was a robbery and the dad got killed and, um, that's also been fed into this conspiracy about like why he like, Oh, well maybe that was a gambling debt or something, but right. uh, it looks like it was just a robbery. Um, but yeah, he winds up coming what back. What kind of debt could that guy not have paid? Well, exactly. He's that's huge <laughs> gambling. Uh, you know, he loves poker and stuff, you know? Yeah. But he makes 400 million a year <laughs> in his, in, got, in his sleep. Right. You're right. Yeah. <laughs> what uh, kind of what kind of debt would Michael Jordan have to say? God, give me another week, fellas. Well, my I guess mean, is if there was any kind of if there was ever anything like that, it wouldn't be because he couldn't pay it. It was just because he probably didn't, right? Like, yeah. <laughs> like that. Like, that could definitely be yourself. the kind of guy who gets in a right. situation and goes, "No, fuck you! I'm not giving you your yeah. money." And right. somebody feels like they got to teach him a lesson. But I don't. I want to reiterate. I don't think that's true. <laughs> I think he just quit basketball and went to play baseball, and then came back and he won three more championships. Yeah, amazing. What it, it, it's it sounds like he was really a great player, and I enjoyed learning about his shoe. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It's a very special episode for us today. Matt Singer. Matt Singer is a film critic and a writer and historian on film who now has a great book. It's called Opposable Thumbs, How Siskel and Ebert Changed Movies Forever. And uh, Chris, I, I mean, I don't know that there's much more that we have to say that we don't say in our actual conversation with Matt. But I mean, like, suffice it to say as much as we've talked about wrestling or uh, sports or anything that we talk about here, like Siskel and Ebert are as formative to our lives as any other element of culture. Would you say that's fair? Absolutely. That's fair. I mean, these, this was a show 
I would thumb through my TV guide to make sure it was on when it was on last week. Because sometimes yeah, it would it change. it got moved around. Yeah, yes, yeah. it got moved around. So I had to literally appointment television this. And it's something I sought out. And it is just something near and dear to my heart. Because these two guys have, were in my life for yeah. so long. And like, yes, they were, you know talking about movies but they also showed clips of movies which was super important because in those days yeah. it wasn't a thing yeah so you, I, you saw commercials on tv and that was it you didn't was get it. to see other movie clips unless you yes. went to the movie and this was just like oh my god i get to watch part of the movie on yeah. this show sign me up and then these guys would talk and they would bicker and they would debate and it was glorious it was funny it was it was sometimes just like holy shit i can't believe he just said that to, to this guy and he's still just sitting there but yeah it was just part of my childhood and i love these two men yeah well i, I got brought to it by my dad who was watching it when it was still on pbs and oh, no way you know, that's so, early yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we, it was like a family thing. Like we'd wow. we, we'd put it on the same way you'd put on like the news. Like, oh, wow. oh, it's time for sneak previews, and we'd watch the movie show, you know. And so I had it fully ingrained in my mind. And then when they went to syndication, so I was seeking it out wherever it was because that was yeah. like already my show. Like I, it was a show I watched with my family. And there was a great period of time where it was on after wrestling. Yes, on the on Saturday afternoon, like I yeah. would watch wrestling and then Siskel and Ebert. Uh, I remember that vividly, but uh, yeah, it, it couldn't have shaped my life more. Roger Ebert still continues to be a kind of uh, lodestone for me, like someone who I, I consider a spiritual and mental guidepost for like how I should live my life. He's really one of the last great humanists, uh, I believe. Mm. The two of them mean a lot to me. They both have meaning to me individually, obviously Roger Moore, because he lived longer and he his work output went on for a longer period of time, but... Uh, yeah, I'm right there with you. Very important show for me. So I devoured this book when I Same. got it. And I definitely wanted to talk to Matt Singer, who is as much a fan as we are, and uh, but actually wound up going on and doing something with his life <laughs> related to Siskel and Ebert, related to reviewing movies. So this is Matt Singer, uh, who, like I said, just wrote the book, Opposable Thumbs. Get it wherever you get books. If you're a Siskel and Ebert fan, I guarantee you're going to like it. If you're not a Siskel and Ebert fan, I guarantee you're going to learn from it. And I hope you learn something right now as Chris and I talk to Matt Singer. We've crossed paths with you before, but I'm not sure that you have any idea that we did uh, because it was it was digital and conceivably anonymous, but, uh, but we knew that you were there uh, and it was part of Nighthawk movie trivia, uh, which we do regularly. And oh. so there was one night where we were, we, I think you might've made mention of it like on your Twitter or something. And we're like, Oh, Oh, Matt Singer, we're up against him tonight. <laughs> and you always like crushed us you in per in person or no, it, or was, when it no. was pandemic when, time. Yeah. Right, right, right. Yeah. I haven't, I, I went once in person recently, but oh, yeah, really? no. It, yes. Did you have a regular team name or did you change yours? So we that were I fairly regularly for, for the initial days, like initial weeks of the quarantine, we were quarantine wolf too. Yeah. Oh yeah. 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 yeah uh, I remember. <laughs> yeah. 
Awesome. Like I was doing that with all my friends from grad school, basically all my movie nerd friends. Yeah. So that, yeah, I used to love doing it. Um, it was one of the few enjoyable things one could do at that time. Exactly. And, it was like a um, salvation. It, 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 we, we like looked forward to it. It was like the, our one night out, even though it was in. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. And it gave me an excuse to hang out with, you know, most of those, those people don't live in New York anymore. So right. it was like the most oh, I had nice. talked to those people for years. So, well, I'm, I'm not surprised that we uh, found ourselves in that similar circle. Um, not just because we, we know similar people we have you know, common friends and we have common interests, but like, obviously I think we're all from like the same age cohort. And, uh, you know, you have written this book, that were I to have any talent as a writer, it probably would have been the first thing I would have tried to write to was a book about Siskel and Ebert. And in fact, when uh, I started reading it, I sent uh, Chris a text. I was maybe about 10 pages in. And I just said, I'm going to cry reading this fucking book. I love these guys with all my heart. And <laughs> and sure enough, we both cried. Hey, spoiler alert. Did you? Did, yes. I, do, did I do it? Oh, of course. I mean, like, I, I, I would be very disappointed if you didn't. Uh, but uh, and it'd be hard pressed not to cry about any, you know, uh, retelling of uh, the final days of, of, of Gene and Roger. But yeah. uh, but what I was also thinking about when when I, you know, sent that to Chris was like, why? Like, why? Why? And why? Like, we're in our 40s now. I I constantly rewatch these clips rewatch entire shows of siskel and ebert i reread rod chris and i were just talking about this like two weeks ago we were talking about how you know we watched a bunch of arnold movies and then when reread all the roger reviews of these movies and uh, and it was so fulfilling right and i seek out things like your book like the ringer did a podcast on gene and roger and obviously i read and seen uh life itself and so like i come up with this question why do i love these guys so much and i guess the first thing to ask you is did you already have a solid answer to that or is part of writing the book you trying to answer that question too well, first of all, I just we got to I want to hear about the Arnold movies. Can we put a pin in that for later? Or <laughs> yes, I want to know because you're absolutely. talking to you're talking to maybe the only I, I sometimes call myself a Schwarzeneggerologist, perhaps the only one on Earth. And, um, you know, uh, if I could write a book about that, I, I probably would. So we got to talk about that at some point. I, uh, not to not answer your question. The sec the second way I'm going to avoid answering your question is just to say. My wife, the only person who read this book while I was working on it is my wife. And I would give her chapters and say, how is this? How is this? And she is not a movie nerd. You know, she mm. likes movies, but uh, she's not pathetic like I and perhaps you guys are. And um, when I gave her that part, like I walked in and she was like, at, when she finished it, she was like crying. And she's like, you son of a, mm. like, how could you make me read this? It's really upsetting. Are you talking specifically about the chapter of, of Gene's death or Roger's yeah, death? Yeah, the stuff yeah. about, about, about Gene. And, um, I, you know, I, I got to do the audio book myself for, for the book, which I wanted to do and was super fun for the most part. But then reading that part, yeah, it, it can get a little, a little uh, heavy. Um, in terms of your actual question of why I like these guys, yeah, I I did think a lot about that um, because the show hit me at an age where I never – I was too young to intellectualize the why because I'm talking I'm 12, I'm 13. And most of the stuff I'm, I'm liking is not two dudes, two middle-aged, you know, uh, dudes in blazers and sweaters – 
sitting in a movie theater talking about movies. And I was at that time, I was not the biggest movie nerd. You know, um, I went to movies. I watched what was playing. I grew up in suburban New Jersey. So it's like, you know, if something I was playing, a dumb comedy was playing at the Freehold Metroplex or <laughs> Movie City 5, you know, I would ask, you know, like, Weird Al Yankovic has a movie, Mom. Can you please take me to see UHF? You know, you know, Spaceballs, you know, I was I, I liked Spaceballs more than Star Wars, frankly, when I was a kid. Let's Same. I'm going to be honest. I think a lot of people don't want to admit that, but I definitely did. <laughs> and really, until I discovered Siskel and Ebert, that was the kind of movies that I was into. And it really was this show that was like the the lightning bulb of like, oh, there are more movies out there than dumb, silly comedies, which I still love. Don't get me wrong. And the why is a is an internal question. I I, I don't know. I think I, I do wonder to some extent now whether it was in some ways because I was joking about the sweater vests and the uh, and the blazers. You know, and the fact that, frankly, let's be honest, these were not the coolest dudes in the universe. But I think in some way that appealed to me, because even at that age, I knew I was not cool. I was not going to be uh, the star football player. I was not going to be a movie star. I think I understood that innately, even at that age. And I think there was something appealing about the ordinariness of these guys, at least the way they presented themselves on TV, they were amazing talkers and they were great TV presences, but there was something attainable about what they were doing. They were watching movies and they were talking about them. And I think that uh, really grabbed me and hooked me at that young age. I kind of have the same feeling you did about, you know, they don't seem cool, but then when you got into them, to me, anyway, they were cool. like they, these were like if I were you've met Roger Ebert later in his life. If I ever had been in that guy's presence, I would have uh, like crumbled like a fanboy. Like I would, I, I've never had that experience really in front of anyone famous, and I definitely would have in front of him. I wouldn't have been able to say anything. I was paralyzed with fear to ever send anything to the movie answer man page. I was always afraid <laughs> oh, wow, of okay. that. You know? Yeah. No, I did that. I got in uh, twice. I think to the movie answer man. Uh, oh, yeah, you know. Oh, yeah, yeah. You can find them. I think if you, I mean, now it might be tougher, but I think, I mean, I'm, I don't know if I was ever in one. I mean, first of all, I had the questions for the movie Answer Man book. That was one of my favorite yep. Roger Ebert books Love as a book. kid. Yes, I did write in several times and one, I believe definitely once, maybe twice, I got a question answered. And I think they may have been reprinted in like, um, you know, like he always put out the movie yearbook, uh, right, right. and he'd have uh, every a few year. questions in it. Yeah. And they would, he would, he would compile some of those movie answer man columns in there. And I believe one of them might've been in one of those books somewhere, maybe in my parents' house somewhere. I think I have, uh, that, that book, but that was very, uh, thrilling for sure. I, but I would have been completely I, envious of you if I knew that. <laughs> I will say this, you mentioned, you know, that, uh, uh, I did meet him and I did get to work with him when I was uh, when he was older and uh, I was, you know, sort of uh, starting out and stuff. But I had met him before that. Oh, yeah. I had met him at a at a book signing in like 2005. And you talk about not being able to uh, you think you would not be able to speak. I that was me. It was. And I can remember he did a book signing for The Great Movies 2, mm -hmm. another one of his books here in New York. It was at the. It doesn't exist anymore. It was the Barnes and Noble by Lincoln Center. 
Oh yeah. He did a talk. Yeah. He did. He did a talk, and then you got your book signed. And I remember waiting and going on the line and uh, being like, "It was the full Chris Farley show moment." You know. Uh-huh. You know. <laughs> you, you remember when you did Cisco and Hebert? I, mean, I like that show a lot, and I, I really wanted to be a film critic. And I say, <laughs> and I just remember. I, I feel like the response I got was something. You know, he's very smiley and friendly and nodding and saying something along the lines, "Well, good luck to you." You know, something yeah. like that. But it really was uh, that sort of vibe. When I met him again professionally, it did go a little it went better than that, thankfully. But yes, I can p- completely relate to that uh, that feeling of uh, absolutely they were, they were inspirational figures um, in my life. I don't know if I ever thought if I could be them, I could be cool because <laughs> I, 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 I mean you know, this was not the show for me that I would talk like you know sure when i was that age i also watched seinfeld and the simpsons and you would have friends that you would like quote those things with you know like did like the day after the new simpsons episode you know you'd be at lunchtime you'd be quoting did you remember that line you know that was a great part didn't do that with siskel and ebert i uh, <laughs> this was i kind of kept this one close to my vest i wasn't really like going did you guys see the uh the uh, review of independence day could you believe that that was <laughs> wild i don't you know that I did not do this was kind of like this is one of those things that was kind of kind of my secret. You know what I mean? And it's but what's great now is getting to talk to guys like you and writing the book. It's like I'm realizing that this secret thing that I was obsessed with is something that a lot of people of our age share. Now, were you always consistently one guy over the other? Like, did you like, were you like, you know, people are either like a John guy or a Paul guy. Were you a Roger guy? Like, I mean, I can say just personally, there were different times in my life where I was a different one of them or like a related more to one over the other. Whereas now in my like you know, I would say the last maybe 20 years of life, I think I've pretty consistently been a Roger guy. And that might owe more to his longer body of work as he lived on. But there were definitely points in my life where I was like, man, Gene's always right. Roger's always wrong. Like, (laughs) did did you have a similar thing? That's a good question. I, you know, I definitely, what you're saying about, you know, being a Roger guy later is true. And it was certainly true for me because, you know, after being obsessed with the show, and then, um, you know, buying some of those books, which you could get um, then in the late 90s, I go to go to college and that's the, you know, the Internet finally really hits. And Rogers reviews start going up weekly on Chicago Suntimes.com or whatever the website was. And now every Friday I'm reading his reviews. And unfortunately, Gene's already passed away by this point. Mm, so right. that's really when I become like a mega the pathetic Roger fan who goes to the book signing and is <laughs> that guy because I was, you know, now fanatically, you know, I had already been a fan of the show, but now is really becoming a fan of his his writing. During the time when I was a kid watching the show, I, you know, I I don't know that I necessarily had a favorite. Mm. I I really what I liked about it was that neither they they felt like equals to me. Um, it, it, they never felt like. One was getting the better of the other. It always felt to me like this epic struggle between these two titans. You know what I mean? And they never – it wasn't like one ever said, you got me there, Raj. I I feel – you make a good point. You never heard the phrase, you make a good point 
on Siskel and Ebert, even when both of them often did make good points. They refused to concede that at any point, anyone but them made a good point. Right. In all the years of the show, I think there's one example of Gene changing his mind on the air for a movie, the John Travolta action movie, Broken Arrow. You know, right. he he gave it like a very mild, positive review. Roger rebuts and says, yeah, I think pretty much what you said is true, except I don't think it's very good. And, you know, this was even worse than you said. And I didn't really care for this. And Gene goes like, you know what? I've never done this. And he never had and he never would again. He's like, I'm going to twist the thumb down. You're right. What am I praising here? It's not really that good. Thumbs down. It's so funny. Because I read reading it in in the book, it was like I it was like somebody uh like writing about like the helmet catch in the Super Bowl. Like I was like I remember when that happened. Like I, <laughs> I I had like this vivid memory of the the graphic of the thumb being turned downward yes. on screen. Like I'm like <laughs> sitting there with my dad watching it. Like whoa, did you see what just happened? It was- it was it was like it was almost as if a Hulk Hogan had just picked up Andre the Giant, honestly. <laughs> and then, of course, because Gene could not because, I mean, theoretically, this is a victory for Roger and has never happened. And he could not let that stand. He tried in that moment. to. He was like, now, OK, now do me a favor. Admit that you were wrong about Cop and a Half, which was a movie <laughs> that famously uh, Roger had given thumbs up to and liked. And he wouldn't do it. Roger was like, no, 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 no. I I saw things in Cop and a Half, the Burt Reynolds comedy Cop and a Half that other people didn't see. (laughs) So and so there you go. Yeah. So, yeah, they they would they fought and argued. But it was it was this neither one would budge. You know what I mean? And I think that's what I really loved about it is that they were so, so dogged in their opinions and it 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 you never knew who you were going to agree with i guess to your point is that maybe sometimes you would be like yeah i kind of feel gene is right or sometimes you might go yeah i think roger has a good point there not that they would ever admit that the other was had a good point but yeah i think that's what i really responded to when i was watching it was that they always felt like they were so evenly matched and neither one would would give an inch to the other that was part of the appeal when we started this out by talking about this, uh, you know, trivia league that we were uh, uh, playing in over the pandemic, and you were saying how you, you know, were were teamed up with people you were friends with from grad school, and there was a line that jumped out at me in the book. It was specifically around you talking about like the debate over what they were doing to critical discourse, right? Specifically the TV show and the famous Richard Corliss article likening them to a sitcom and saying it was degrading film discourse. And you have a very simple kind of rebuttal. I don't know if you intended to be a rebuttal, but it's like a one-line rebuttal to all that. And it's like, this was people's first taste of film school. And that got as close, I think, as I'd ever gotten to the question of the why in there was like, this is the only non-real-life relationship I have with people, parasocial, whatever you want to call it, but, like, the only relationship with people that I have not met, flesh and blood, that I feel the way I do about a kind of noble and life-changing teacher. They did the hard work of educating me to a point where I could change my viewpoint on things or I could adjust the prism by which I was seeing the world in a way that helped that I thought that, that the best teachers can do if they say, just don't try to think about acing the test, just listen, listen to what I'm saying. And I have to imagine, you know, 
feeling that way and then going to grad school and being a film scholar and now a person who makes his living writing about film and enjoying film, you have to more even more explicitly than I do draw the line to them in that way of of almost being you know an entry point into the you know discovery of film as an intellectual pursuit. Oh, one hundred percent. I I totally thought of them uh, later in life, and you know now think of them as yeah, I'm like my first film teachers. You know, mm-hmm. not that they certainly didn't know it at the time, but um, yeah. I mean, when you're you know when you're young, it's so easy to be like a gate, a gatekeeper and pushing people out of things. And they were the gateway, not the gatekeepers. You know, I think they had this way of making films that could be very inaccessible, especially to like a 13 year old who doesn't know anything, feel very accessible. They made you want to go out and see these movies and they never Mm -hmm. made you feel like, because you hadn't seen something by Fellini or Kurosawa or Renoir, whoever it was that you were, you were somehow lesser than they might think you're missing out and encourage you to go check it out. But they they made you want to do that. They made you want to learn more. They made these very potentially obtuse things seem um, within your grasp. And, you know, I think they both were good at doing this. But Roger, especially as a writer, is something I always especially later when I got into his writing. Uh, It's sort of the thing that I'm always trying. I don't know how often I succeed, but always trying to capture is the way that he could write about um, these movies in a way that made them feel so accessible. And Mm -hmm. he was that was really one of his great gifts as a writer was he was so good at that. Uh, One of my favorite chapters, I think, is is chapter five, where you basically chronicle uh, Gene and Roger making the rounds of various late night talk shows. Uh, I, I I knew of them on Letterman, but I, I actually never knew the story of them uh, being on the, on the, the Johnny Carson uh, Tonight Show and uh, the behind the scenes story of what happened there was is honestly probably my favorite uh, story in your entire book. Um, but you, you know, I know from the book that you used to stay up and watch Siskel and Ebert uh, the show once your family fell asleep um, when you were a kid. But did you ever watch or even know about them doing these late night shows? Or was that something that was revealed later on in your life? No, I definitely were watching because around this age was also when I discovered, yeah, like late night TV. Letterman was always my favorite and Conan. They did Conan too, although I think their most memorable appearances are more Mm. like Letterman and uh, uh, Carson. But I was a huge uh, Conan O'Brien fan growing up. Um, and which is, you know, that's right around that same time, that early nineties period is where I would, you know, stay up and watch, uh, Letterman and then, and then Conan. But, um, yeah, I would, I would say that it, it, it all kind of coincided and I, I would always get excited when they were on those shows. And I, I do think those shows were instrumental in helping them become bigger TV stars and establishing them beyond the boundaries of the community of dweebs like me who were watching the show um, because it was, it was bringing them to a more mainstream, a broader audience. It was, it was having them sit next to the people that they were reviewing these, these movies of, you know, and kind of putting them on equal star footing in a way, because, you know, uh, Chevy Chase would come out and promote three amigos and then Siskel and Ebert would come out and they would bash three amigos while Chevy Chase is still sitting there. And I think that was a huge boon to them and to the show because, you know, that talk show world, while it can be very entertaining and amusing, there's a certain amount of like 
phoniness or like just smiliness that's baked into that world where everyone is happy. Everyone's cracking jokes, having a good time. Isn't it fun to be here? And isn't the movie I just made the best movie ever made? Let's show the clip. And it looks great. And it's coming out on Friday. Thanks for coming, Chevy. That kind of atmosphere. And then they would come out next and be like, actually, Three Amigos is not a good movie. You should not go see it. Uh, sorry, Chevy. You'll, you've made good movies before. You'll make good movies again. But uh, this one isn't one of them. And they were one of the few people who would do that on these shows. They They were honest. They cut through the BS. They told it like it was. And you it reinforced that idea that I certainly believed then and now that whenever you heard their opinion, they were going to tell you what they thought. And they weren't going to say anything because they wanted to make a star happy or a studio happy or a publicist asked them to be nice. They didn't care what anyone thought. They were going to give you their opinion. And if that meant saying it to the face of the star, you know, I think Gene especially kind of relished that um he he was a con he could be a confrontational guy at times and he didn't mind uh saying to someone's face you know your new movie isn't so great why aren't you making movies as good as you used to make yeah it seemed almost pathological for him that he could not uh say something that was dishonest or he couldn't uh you know be diplomatic he had to say exactly what he felt whether that was to a movie star or to his boss or anybody you you point out at one point in the book that roger says like yeah gene doesn't care if people like him or not i think to right his right and you know that is a <laughs> now it, again in some situations maybe that's not a good thing for a film critic that's one of the best yes. qualities you can have exactly because and I say this from experience, you know, people, you want people to like you. That's like a natural thing for most people is yeah. you don't, you know, you're not, you know, you, you want to have your opinion, but you're also, not, I mean, you're not necessarily looking to make people angry or dislike you. And he didn't care. And he, you know, and it didn't matter who yeah. it was. It could be his favorite director. If he thought Martin Scorsese made a bad movie. He would say that they gave two thumbs down to the color of money, right. which I think is a great movie, but they were unimpressed <laughs> and right. they didn't like it, even though they thought, you know, they later gave Raging Bull, you know, they called that the best movie of the 80s and they loved Goodfellas and so many other Scorsese movies. I think I think Gene didn't like Casino. He didn't. He gave th you're right. He gave yeah. thumbs down. Another amazing movie. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. But but I think that speaks to the fact that he didn't. Uh, he didn't grade on a curve, you know, if it, does, right. it didn't matter that he loved Scorsese and maybe he socialized with him or, you know, they wrote a book that the proceeds went to Scorsese's film foundation. The only book that they ever wrote together, in fact. Yeah, but right, if, right. if, if Scorsese's new movie is a stinker, according to him, he's going to say that. And I yeah. think that that was, it was great, uh, to do that as a film critic. It was great for the show. And again, it was amazing to see on talk shows because, Again, talk shows. I like I said, I was a huge Conan fan and Letterman fan. Those shows were great. But what they brought to those shows that they didn't always otherwise have was was drama and tension. You know, it's people are there to have fun and smile and be happy. And when they showed up, you didn't know what was going to happen. Maybe they were going to insult someone to their face. Maybe they were going to piss someone off. <laughs> and just that little bit of suspense and edge gave a little zing to those shows when they were on them. Well, and you also did uh, answer something I've always wondered 
uh, because I have I, uh, I saved in my my photo stream a picture of uh, Roger and Gene doing the double thumbs up with Hulk Hogan right <laughs> between them. And I've always wondered, wait, where did this come from? Like, they definitely hate Hulk Hogan movies. Like, this wasn't like on a junket or something. And there's a brief mention in the book that they were at the uh, Natby convention, the television uh, uh, syndication convention, and uh, and WWF was there putting on matches. So I have to believe that was the meeting of Hulk Hogan and Siskel and Ebert. 100%. And I, I don't, I'd have to look in my notes but somewhere I found a video, like a news report from NatP, this, yeah, the syndication convention, which I think actually just like within the, like this year was maybe canceled permanently, possibly. Oh, wow. Like, but, but until a few years ago when cable syndication was big, this was like, yeah, the big industry event. Anyone who oh, syndicated yeah. a TV show or wanted to, you show up here, you sell your wares, like a trade show. And for Siskel and Ebert, this was a huge thing. And they would go and they would promote the show. And yes, uh, uh, the WWF, because their product then was all syndicated Saturday morning syndicated TV, they would set up a ring. And I found a clip of them like pr- like doing like wrestling matches at one of these conventions. And the, the audience of like 12 guys in suits is a little bewildered. I can't remember yeah. any of the wrestlers um that were in the clip but um for sure i guarantee you that is where that picture you're talking about of hulk and siskel and ebert which i think i have seen and is definitely a weird for me too like uh a a moment of my child like childhood icons like merging and meeting in this very strange and and surreal way yeah Yeah, spider-man could have been like could have wandered through the background (laughs) it would have been like you know, if someone had like <laughs> taken my brain and put it in a blender and poured it out onto a picture, it could have been like the ultimate, like, here's your personality in one picture. Enjoy. <laughs> yeah. I posted every New Year's like a like as a, uh, a be good to each other message. That's my visual the representation spirit of the holidays. Of yes. If they could get along <laughs> and it, with that man appearing in No Holds Barred and Mr. Nanny and Suburban Commando. There's hope for all of us, isn't there? <laughs> all right. Well, listen, before we lose you, let's let's wrap up with this Arnold thing, because, you know, we had Arnold on WTF uh, last week. And before that, to lead up to it, Chris and I were talking about uh, our favorite Arnold movies and we did our, our favorite five. And so to put you on the spot as the like Arnold Schwarzenegger ecologist uh, that you are, just give us your, your top line. What What's the best Arnold movie? That's a that's an impossible to answer question. And you know that oh, because there's so many good ones and they're good. There are, but I will say it came pretty easy to me really? to get my best. Really? Yeah. Yeah, I, I said Total Recall was was my best. That's a great movie. I mean, that's definitely in the conversation. I mean, to me, that's up there. The Terminator, Terminator 2 is up there. But what I love about uh, Schwarzenegger, and that it was an awesome podcast, uh, and I have gotten to interview him now a few times, and it's uh, that's another one where you're fighting back the uh, for me anyway the whole the, the Chris Farley urge of yeah, my boy, you made that was, a good, <laughs> that was a good movie that was a good movie and like in that case I'm like actually interviewing him about about, about Predator uh, <laughs> yeah. that was maybe that was Chris's number one by the yeah, way yeah. Was Predator. fabulous movie um, but yeah I mean to me what's so interesting about Arnold um, is that you know, and I've written it pathetically at length about this, is that to me, Arnold is like an unappreciated auteur 
of his movies. I think now he gets his due as an action star who made very entertaining movies. I think at this point, that's pretty much agreed on. And we all love Terminator 2 and we do and we love Predator and Commando and all those movies. But what I love is that you you watch his movies and you see this guy talking about his life in these in these ways that maybe people didn't really notice at the time. You look at how many movies are about husbands who are screwing up their marriages or mm. that are feeling guilty about having failed their wives or their children, especially in that later period, uh, right after things are happening in his personal life that mm-hmm. might reflect that. Almost every movie he made after that like period is about that in some way. And 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 maybe they're the quote unquote bad movies, you know, like Batman and Robin is about a, a dad, a, a husband who's trying to help his wife and has failed repeatedly. And now he's this cold, icy figure. No pun intended, except I definitely intended it. There were yeah. lots of puns intended. Exactly. In exactly. Every pun was intended <laughs> or or end of days. He's a husband who's lost his family and he's like grappling with the guilt around that or collateral damage where he's a guy whose family has been killed by a terrorist and he's seeking revenge or Maggie, which is about a guy who is d- debating how to deal with his daughter and feels guilty about it. And I could go on and I have gone on. I mean, if you Google my <laughs> name in Arnold Schwarzenegger, you will find the pieces I've written about this. So, yeah, I mean, like, yeah, w- if I had to. Pick one movie, I probably would pick Terminator 2 or maybe Total Recall. But I just think that, you know, and and Stallone is kind of this way, too. Um, And I've written about that as well. You know, they're you know, we talk about auteurs to me. They're like the actors. You know, these are the guys Mm -hmm. who had so much power. They were the ones in, you know, picking the scripts and they were the ones often picking the directors. And, you know, producing their movies or at least had the, the, you know, the the juice to what they decided was going with these movies. So these aren't like coincidences, you know what I mean? Right. So that's what I love about, about Arnold is that if you know his biography, that makes his movies even more interesting. Total Recall is a good example too. I mean, Last Action Hero is another good example. True Lies. I mean, if that's not a movie about secrets in a marriage, then there's never been a movie made about secrets in a marriage ever. So that's the that's the stuff that I uh, really, really love about Arnold. Well, I do hope that people who well, obviously people who are fans of Siskel and Ebert and and have kind of loved movies and loved the way movies have been reviewed since Siskel and Ebert was a show are going to find, you know, innumerable things about your book to enjoy. But I really do hope people who like are younger than that era or maybe just, you know, didn't pay it much mind. I really hope they get a hold of your book and I think it will open their eyes to something and, you know, it becomes the gateway in itself. Like, uh, I, I, am envious of someone who gets to come to Siskel and Ebert with fresh eyes and kind of start on their own path with them. So, you know, on, on that level, I think the book would be a tremendous success just for, uh, for newbies as well. Uh, but obviously for someone like me, someone like Chris and, and obviously someone like yourself, Matt, this is uh, right in the wheelhouse uh thank you so much for doing it thank you so much for doing this with us thank you no it was a, it was a pleasure it was nice to talk about siskel and ebert with some 
fans, wrestling fans. I feel like we we probably could just keep talking. I have I have yes, this feeling. Right. <laughs> we yeah. speak the same language. It, it's very right. clear. Of many here. in many ways. Yes. It's like a, it's like a, a Duolingo of of a very certain type <laughs> of media consumer. Yes. All right. Well, next time we're uh, facing each other in trivia, we won't take it easy on you. <laughs> <laughs> There was something that came up a few weeks ago. Chris was asking me, I believe you were asking me about, did I ever have any impulses to be a comedian or get into comedy? And I went through my whole rigmarole with that, my whole (laughs) shtick. And uh, and you said no, you never had that, not not even anything close, but that uh, you did have the desire to once, just once, tell a story that you say is your your like your one story. That was how you categorized it. This mm-hmm. is my one story. I have one story. And you said, I would like to tell it on The Moth <laughs> or This American Life. Yes. When Meanwhile, you're on a show right now. You have a show that you are, have access to every week. And uh, you can do this story at any time. But I would not let you. I said that it had to be built up. <laughs> Right. So yes. we, we ended last week's show with a little bit of a cliffhanger and said that we will do this story. And right here, I'm not going to make anybody wait any longer. The, the anticipation is killing everyone. And so we're just <laughs> going to go right into it. This is your stage, Chris Lopresto, the story, your one story. And now the floor is yours. What is the story you have to tell? My story is about being banned for life from a grocery store. So I met a girl, now my wife, and at the time she was a member of the Park Slope Food Co-op. Ever heard of it? I have heard of it. Yeah. This is a member-only grocery store in Park Slope, Brooklyn. It's, it's uh, legendary in its uh, strife that is caused by the, by the members of the Park Slope Food Co-op. Yes. Infamous, I would say. Uh, so to be a member of this food co-op, uh, you have to agree to work once every six weeks. Now, my wife at the time, uh, she cuts cheese in the basement, which sounds hilarious. It <laughs> uh, also seemed to be a genuinely fun gig to have like wait, a wait, big... Wait, wait, wait. <laughs> That's her thing? Like yes. her one job there every week she has to go, she, it was always the same, cut cheese in the basement? Always cutting cheese in the basement every six weeks, yes. And what, is that, what does that entail? It, it entails getting uh, the cheeses from various regions of the world and cutting them in an appropriate amount of weight so that you can then bag it and then put a little scan scanner on it and, uh, you know, so that people can buy it for X amount of dollars. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Now yeah. I'm, I'm up to speed on this yeah. cheese cutting. <laughs> so... Once we moved in together, she told me that uh, I should join the food co-op because it would be considered stealing if I'm benefiting from her grocery runs to this exclusive grocery store. And let me tell you, I was not into it. I begrudgingly accepted. I am, you know, just someone who wants to make someone else happy. So I figured I'd do something interesting like cutting cheese or working the register or something, right? So I filled out my application, got assigned a job and a day and a time. Well, I was assigned custodian at 7 p.m. on Mondays. Did they look at you first when they did? did, did <laughs> was, that, was it totally visually judgmental? 
they looked at you. They're like, you look like you need to have a giant ring of keys and a mop. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I think it was blind. I mean, I did ask, like, are you like, is there anything? Like, nah, this is all we got. It's like, okay. So, <laughs> so my job was to empty waste baskets, clean the bathrooms, break down tables and stack chairs, mop the floors, all kinds of great stuff. Not exactly what I had in mind. So, and this for, is so you could get like some fig spread or something, right? This, this is yeah. so I can actually go and shop and give this place money so so I can I can get food. Like this is I mean, I could go to Key Food right down the street, but no, this food is better apparently. I digress. Uh so for two whole years, every 6 weeks I had to stop what I was doing and go to the food co-op and be a janitor for a night. Every shift, there was a checklist of things to do. There would be like a few of us each shift. Uh, We would split the chores and divide and conquer. As time went on, I actually became like a crew manager. I was like the manager. I would tell people, okay, do this, do that. I'll do this. And we'll, you know, that, you know, that's what we'll do. So I would listen to podcasts and empty the trash can and uh, clean the toilets. I would actually have to clean the toilets at this place until every single item was checked off, right? So we had a checklist, checked everything off. And once everything was done, I would just leave. I would also tell my staff, like, hey, you know, get it done quick. We can get out of here before the second half of Monday Night Football or Monday Night Raw, um, that sort of thing. Uh, Well, apparently, it's not just the items to do on the list that are important. It's the amount of time you spend at the grocery store. Because I would do all my tasks in about an hour and then leave. Apparently, this is frowned upon. Apparently, I'm supposed to do all these tasks in two hours and 45 minutes, no less. So I was expected to be a janitor and leisurely do these tasks starting at 7 p.m. and leave at 9.45. So one day I get a letter in the mail saying that I've been accused of time theft and I will have a chance to plead my case next week. First of all, I'm mortified because this is my wife's thing. I don't give a shit about this grocery store. And here I am just fucking it up and like embarrassing her to her peers, right? So I plot out what I'm going to say. Uh, I write it down that I, you know, I, I legit never missed a shift in two whole years, right? Uh, and I, I didn't understand that I was required to be there for that long and, uh, you know, just, you know, sort of just beg for forgiveness and like hope for just a warning, right? Uh, well, I get to the co-op and I go to the admin office. Now, this is the same room that I used to go and dismantle tables and stack chairs, right? Well, now I see why these tables were set up. It was set up to be a trial and I was the defendant. I sat on one table. Across from me on another table were three people, the plaintiffs, and between us was another table with three judges. Across from the judges sat a fucking grocery store reporter. I shit you not, a grocery store reporter. I felt like Joe Pesci walking into the basement room uh, thinking he was about to get made in Goodfellas. Also, uh, upon reflection, the scene is basically the same exact scene from Oppenheimer, the third hour of Oppenheimer, where he's on trial. It's that scene. Oh, so it's a total that, kangaroo court? 
yes, a total kangaroo court, okay? So the plaintiffs hand out a thick packet of documents. I'm, I'm waving it right now. Oh, my God. This thick packet of documents. And the judges allow me a few minutes to look it over. Now, Brendan, this document is about 50 pages. Yeah. 50 pages long. And in it are the list of my time theft occurrences and color screenshots of video they have of me entering and leaving the grocery store like I'm Jason fucking Bourne. <laughs> I, I, I swear, I, I, look, you, you can say, I know it's a, I know it's a podcast. So look, there's fucking video surveillance yeah, yeah. of me. You see, you see okay? these for Al-Qaeda. <laughs> like these are, these yes. are from like Zero Dark Thirty. <laughs> they like show like, look, I think Bin Laden was coming in and out of the compound here. <laughs> Oh, so they alleged that I tried to hide my identity by switching shirts or removing a hat. Uh, They're opening remarks by the plaintiff. uh, And I'm asked if I have any open remarks. And I honestly felt like saying, again, just like Joe Pesci, except this time from my cousin Vinny, that, uh, yeah, everything they said was bullshit. Uh, (laughs) However, I tried to stay professional, let them know that no ill intent was happening. Again, hoping for a slap on the wrist, right? They called witnesses to the stand. An administrative worker who saw me leave multiple times and I knew this motherfucker was was clocking me because uh, he was giving me like just like the evil eye, just like this bald, white, bearded motherfucker. Anyway, he would say that, you know, he would see me every every shift and I would leave before the, the amount of time. They also called the fucking video uh, guy who was hired to to look at the surveillance and and you know mark and take pictures of the video oh, man. Uh, See, of me actually if you had only given to calico cut pants you would have uh, <laughs> that guy would have been on your side cuz he gives <laughs> so when they asked me to testify i threw myself on the mercy of the court and explained that I don't, I didn't know about the time stipulation and explained that I wasn't hiding my identity. I simply got sweaty walking up and down stairs and cleaning toilets and that I wanted to change. So there's a mountain of evidence at this point piling up against me. They called recess to talk amongst themselves. And by the way, these fucking judges, there was like a nice judge who was like, ah, oh, don't worry, it's going to be fine. And then like a serious judge who would just, just be shaking his head uh, the entire time. And then just like another judge who was just kind of like, fine, like, ah, you know, I don't know. We'll see what happens. Five minutes later, they call us back in and told me that I was found guilty and banned for life from the Park Slope Co-op. Now it's at this point that- oh, man. They told me that every member of my of my household was also banned oh, for life no. from the grocery store. So I am now panicked. I am begging them to spare my wife as she has nothing to do with these crimes. Also, slap on the wrist, warning, nothing. They told me, oh, that's a great idea. We may think about doing warnings in the future, but, but because previously there were no warnings, this you're banned for life from this place. So they also told me that uh, since we're living together, my wife and I, uh, there's no way for them to reconsider. I then started to lie and say that we were on rocky ground and going to separate any day. Nope, the, their decision is final. And that 
is how I got us banned for life from the Park Slope Co-op. Wow. That's my story. (laughs) I mean, it's a great story because I have so many questions. (laughs) Shoot, what do you got? All right. So so the first thing is, with all these witnesses, where were the, the motherfuckers from your staff who you got, uh, got also got to finish their work so quickly. I so I didn't realize that this was going to be such a serious crime. Again, I thought it was going to be a slap on the wrist, like a warning. But I told them I was like, guys, I'm a, the crew manager. Like I, you could ask anyone that works with me. They're like, well, we're not asking them. We're asking you. And I was, I was just, I was fucked, man. I was just completely fucked. But what did they say to the idea that you were like, but I, I, my, my whole thing was I thought I needed to get everything just done. Did they, they said, they said, no, in, in the contract that you signed, oh. there's a two hour, 45 minute uh, time uh, allowance. And did they ever say what you were supposed to do if you got done in 45 minutes? No, they said, you're just supposed to do your job and be there for two hours and 45 minutes. Wow. Like, no. Yeah, no, no way around it. You know who's the, whose story this matches up with perfectly? Who's you, that? you are Larry David when he worked at SNL. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> yes, what when was he was a guy? writer at SNL. That he tells the story that like he came in and you know it was like okay the show you know it's tuesday or whatever right. shows on saturday and uh here's some of the things we're working on he pitched things and whatever and it's like tuesday he comes into work nobody's there whatever he doesn't give a shit he doesn't like anybody <laughs> so he just sits down and he writes all his scripts right and then it's like midnight and he's going home <laughs> he's like waiting at the elevator and one of the producers is like where are you going and he's like, home? I did, I worked all day. I've been here like all day long. And they, they were like, oh yeah, no, no, but we do like an all-nighter on Tuesday. Like this is, uh, this is how we've always done it. And he's like, yeah, it ain't how I'm going to do it. Like, <laughs> and, and he contends that that like basically got him like put on the outs with uh, the SNL of, uh, brain trust. Of course. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Looks good on you though. <laughs> yeah. Wow. That's amazing. So yeah. All right. Larry the David other thing I have to say, and this mm. is going to come out a little harsh. Oh, and boy. so I what hope you it? forgive me. I hope she forgives me, but this is to your lovely wife, Aaron, who I, who I'm very fond of. I was in your wedding party. Aaron is a great, wonderful, lovely person. Bring it. You can bring it. She brought this on herself. Yes. 100%. (laughs) All she had to do was keep going to the grocery store. She could have cut cheese in the basement for the rest of her life. Yes. 100%, Brendan. I did not have to be there. What was she thinking? She knows who I am. Like, why would she think this is a good idea? Like, I but don't. It, but also beyond that, it's like, not only was it not a good idea, you then went and did like an extra good job. Right. Your jo- the job you did was so good, you got both of you kicked out of this place. <laughs> also, can I just say, this place sucks, okay? Yeah. Um, I, I actually went to this co-op, like the third date I had with my wife. Uh, we went to like the park. We actually met up with her uh, sister and her uh, boyfriend at the time. Had a lovely time. We went to dinner. We came to the Park Slope Food Co-op. And can I tell you, I went in there as a visitor and I was just like, 
All right, well, this place is weird. I'm going to leave now. I'm going to leave all of you here. I'm just going to go home, so bye. And, like, her, her her boyfriend at the time was like, well, that's the last time we're seeing that guy because this place is fucking nuts. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah well, uh, I mean, a great story. I'm very glad you, you did it here. I think if you did it on This American Life or The Moth, yeah. th- those uh, shows are listened to, I think, by 97% of the membership of the Park Slope Food Co-op. That's right. Right. And and you would have probably hurt their listenership because uh, that there would have been a war would have been created amongst the <laughs> listeners of those shows uh, who had been so angry that you did this and uh, and then there would be another group that were going to like tear up their membership cards in solidarity, which might have been part of my plan. I'll be honest with you. But yeah. <laughs> Honestly, no, I I can't. I, you're a better man than I because I would have left there and I would have been like. I'm going to spend every waking moment of my life figuring out how to shut this place down. <laughs> like, I would, I, like, vengeance Cold. would be mine. Food and inspectors, would, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. You, yeah. You, you, you are done. <laughs> uh, by the way, did I ever tell you that story? No, you never told me that. Amazing. I can't believe I never told you that story. No, wow. I figured it was some, like, deep shame as you were starting the story out. But it's, <laughs> no, it's more like a comedy of errors. Yes, it was, it, yeah. It, it's my one story. I feel like I've told it a bunch and I just, uh, yeah, it's it's quite indicative of who I am. And uh, my my wife, who's like a Girl Scout or Boy Scout. Um, yeah. And like, yeah. And she married just the worst person imaginable uh, to well, ruin I, her time at the grocery store. <laughs> I hope you guys are enjoying Trader Joe's, where everyone can go without having to be a fucking janitor. <laughs> Why do I have to be a janitor? (laughs) Hey, Chris. Brandon, last night there was a man in my house. I fought with this man. He had a mechanical arm. You find that man. (laughs) Happy anniversary, buddy. (laughs) Thank you, dude. Holy cow. It is uh, 30 years since the glorious... Glorious film, The Fugitive, entered our lives. Yeah. Uh, and I did celebrate. I celebrated as though it was like an, a, a celebration of my own ilk, my own people. <laughs> totally. And, and how did you celebrate? Well, for one, I read that awesome Rolling Stone piece that was yes. like an oral history of The Fugitive, uh, which I, I, I was sent around on a text chain that we were on. Did you did you read that? Oh, yeah. I gobbled that up. And uh, I, I, I really just made it a meal because I didn't want it to go too fast. But man, yeah, I read it like over the course of a day. Yeah, yeah same. I, I started it and then I stopped it because I wanted to watch The Fugitive. So I, I fired up Max and watched it and uh, then I continued on and it was just delicious yeah well I mean I've, I've known a lot about the movie since it came out it's one of my favorite movies ever and uh, I, I there was still so much in that piece that I never knew there was insight about the making of the movie that was amazing Tommy Lee Jones was participating in the interview so it was great like he yes. was saying exactly what was going through his mind with the thing it was fantastic it was like just what I've always hoped about yeah, the fugitive for sure um, I mean I don't know Let, let's tell people we we have a history with this movie not just our <laughs> own enjoyment of it but I mean like I, I love the movie since it came out I saw it you know in theaters and oh, then did. I had it oh, oh yeah I saw it in theaters and then awesome. I had it on VHS and watched it all the time mm. and then I think when I got to college I met like-minded people who were also like oh that's one of your favorite movies one of my favorite movies too 
And, yeah. you know, we just put it on all the time. Just why I, I, I could possibly be the movie I've watched the most in my life. Yeah, for sure. Uh, for me, I, I watched it on HBO back in the day. I didn't go to the theaters to see it. It was on HBO, saw it there, loved it, bought it on VHS. My brother worked at, uh, at uh, Blockbuster Video, so I was able to buy it. And my brother had like an early version of the DVD. And like, it was one of those DVDs, I believe it had like a little, a little folder or a little the pocket. plastic clip. Yeah, the plastic he, clip that was so the, stupid. Under the plastic clip, and it was a cardboard <laughs> box. Yes. Like this chin, this was one of the biggest blockbusters of all time. And it came out in this thing that was a cardboard box with a plastic flap. Yes. Which just instantly, I'm like, what is this? If it gets wet, it's just ruined. Yes, uh, right. But yeah, so I, I, I burned out the DVD. I used to I used to put this sh- uh, this movie on when I wanted to go to bed. Like, like okay, it's bedtime. I'm going to put something on that I know. I just pop in The Fugitive and, and let that music and the score uh, drift me off to sleep. Yeah, it's like a nice blanket. It's yeah. a perfect thing to put on at bedtime, I think. Yeah. Uh, and and, and uh, all your friends are there, uh, your, <laughs> your, yes. your U.S. Marshals crew that you've come to know and love. Uh, yeah. No, it's the greatest. I remember I saw it in the movie theater with my parents, and we left buzzing like we yeah. were like as a family we were like that was so great that was so and we were like quoting dialogue to each other the whole time i i remember seeing my grandfather who was like you know a, a jaded old new york union man and like <laughs> but he went to the movies all the time and theater and everything and you know i remember seeing him say grandpa did you see any movies lately and he was like oh yeah i saw that fugitive you got your money's worth with that no. one. And I always remember that. That I was like, yeah, that was the thing. You paid your money and every minute delivered of that movie. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and uh, that Rolling Stone um, oral history is great. First of all, it starts off with talking about all these Oscar bait movies like The Piano, Age of Innocence, and The Joy Luck Club. Guess what? I still haven't seen any of those movies. But you know what I have seen is The Fugitive 50,000 times. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, I mean, the other great thing in that that uh, Rolling Stone piece was about how big of a disaster they thought the movie was. Like, while they were making yeah. it, it had no script. It was like the pages were being done in in real time. And then they were improving so much of the movie, which it feels like. Like, that's one of the great joys of the movie is that it's like yes. has this like lived in feeling where you're like, oh, these people all know each other. Tommy Lee Jones has this great insight about the the character building at the time that he said, you know, he he was hanging out with a deputy U.S. marshal, and he said the one thing he noticed was how much this dude loved his job. He like loved it. He was it was a joy to him to be a U.S. marshal, and he told all the guys and the woman who were playing U.S. marshals, "Hey, we just have to have fun." Like, that's what this guy, he has fun at his job, and we got to do the same thing. And you feel it immediately. As soon as that crew shows up, you're like, oh, these people, A, know what they're doing, B, they're awesome, and C, can I join the U.S. Marshals? (laughs) Totally, totally. Uh, Also, I love that Harrison Ford uh, watches the movie Under Siege, a movie that was a guilty pleasure for me as a kid. And I love that he sees Under Siege and is like, oh, yeah, the guy that directed this should be totally be making The Fugitive. And I just 
I can't believe those two movies are connected that way. I can't believe Harrison Ford watched Under Siege, honestly. Oh, I, I can tell you this. I have watched a double feature of Under Siege <gasps> and then The Fugitive. And it makes oh, awesome. total sense. Like, they are compatible movies. There are tons of people from The Fugitive who are in Under Siege, first of all. Like, that guy, that director clearly right. was like, I liked working with that guy. Put him in the, the Fugitive. And so you see Fugitive people all over Under Siege. It is one million percent Tommy Lee Jones's movie, despite the fact that Steven Seagal yeah. is on the poster. Like these, the, the people making Under Siege yeah. do like, and there's somebody in that Rolling Stone piece says it like, yeah, we knew we had the worst <laughs> actor in the world. So instead we just relied on Tommy Lee Jones. For everything. <laughs> just wonderful. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, the, the other thing that is a uh, part of our shared history with this movie is that we went to an epically failed screening of The Fugitive. We did. So let me let me tell this story, if you don't mind. So we go to what is billed as the fugitive 35 millimeter screening at the Alamo Draft House in Brooklyn. So we meet up for drinks at their House of Wax Bar. And I mention it because I think it's going to become relevant, honestly, later on that we had a, a couple of drinks in us. So it's time to go to the movie. We, we make with our drinks into the theater. Uh, the movie begins and it's humming along. Richard's on the bus going to prison. The bus tips over and the, uh, onto the train tracks. The train's coming. The other prisoner says, the hell with you, Doc. Richard pushes the injured guard to safety. Richard's about to jump off the bus. Very iconic scene coming up all of a sudden we cut to wreckage someone cut out of the 35 millimeter print the iconic bus jump scene and the crowd is murmuring we personally shriek out like we just saw a dead body uh, <laughs> <laughs> but the movie like somehow continues on like we're befuddled we're we're talking we're just like what the fuck but but fine we'll press on I'll tell you, at the time, I thought it was a accidental reel skip. Yeah. You know, like like how sometimes uh, when you're when you're switching from reel to reel, there's a mm -hmm. little overlap. I thought because okay, it's 35 millimeter, they're inexperienced here. They've skipped too soon, right? And so yes. we just yeah. but they accidentally skipped at the most vital part. So but <laughs> but I you know you're right. We were like freaked out, and then you're right. We just were like okay, all right, well settle down. The rest of the movie's coming. Let's just watch the rest yeah. of the movie. It's still an hour and a half to go. Yeah, that's right. So we get to the scene where Tommy Lee Jones calls for a hard target search. And as he's about to say the famous monologue, the scene cuts to the next day, the tow truck driver getting out of his truck. And we all freak the fuck out. At this point, the movie uh, stops and someone from the theater, uh, theater apologizes. Apparently the print had been altered, to which I yell out, and by the way, we're in the back of the theater, right? We're the, the very, very last row. row, very last row, far corner. I, I'm yelling top of my lungs. You, you switch the samples. <laughs> and the, the, like, as if I'm Richard Kimball at the end of the movie, the guy looks over to me confused to which I say again, you switch the samples as loud as I can. He picks up what I'm saying and then just continues on addressing the rest of the theater. And then you say, did you kill Lens too? As loud as you can. This person is now rattled, all right? As if we're you know, accusing this person of murder. <laughs> and 
we're somehow the only people yelling in the theater. I, I didn't really ever register or understand why no one else was. Uh, exactly. Was, why wasn't everyone yelling? You know, yeah. Make your own movie up at that point. Yeah. So they offer everyone free movie tickets, free food, I think, and uh, and hope that the rest of the movie's intact. Well, it's not. Every <laughs> famous scene from The Fugitive is cut out. We're watching the lowlights version of The Fugitive. Uh, I didn't kill my wife. I don't care. Cut. The jump from the dam, gone. Tommy Lee Jones shooting at Kimball on St. Patrick's Day, vanished. We heckled the shit out of this movie the entire time. The ending was void of any, the, the entire roof sequence, gone from the movie. Yeah. Oh, after the movie, we we uh, and after the booing uh, of the screen, uh, the, the lights come up, and again the guy apologizes and says, "Hey, we can't leave until we see the bus crash sequence, right?" So they pulled a digital copy and queued it up. And first this of is all, like a Blu-ray, in exactly the, in the projector. Yeah, booth. or they bought it up from iTunes and then you showed it. Like, yeah, I think they literally said we're going to pop in the Blu-ray. Yeah, so. So, first of all, the, the screen shows up, and it's much louder than the shitty 35mm we were just sitting it, and through. And it looked immaculate. It looked so good. Incredibly rich. And yeah. <laughs> so, we're screaming, why didn't you just play this the entire time? We had to Ugh. sit through this garbage. And and just as a coda for this start, um, all, all this happened with the two of us and one of my brand new co-workers that I had recently met for the first time told him that, I, you know, I had an extra ticket to this screening. He was in town from like Mississippi or something like that. He was very polite and quiet. And here we are, these two New Yorkers yelling at the, at the screen. <laughs> yes. Accusing them of switching samples and killing lens. Needless to say, we gave that guy a very good story to go home with. Also, never saw that guy ever again in my entire life. Are are you serious? <laughs> yes. I have never seen that man before in my life. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my god, that's even better. So this guy just showed up, you invite him to the, the low lights version of the fugitive, and then never see or hear from him again. It's like Homer going to uh, New York City and just being behind the trash, uh, you know, the, the the garbage truck on the way home. He's just like, yeah, all never doing this him. again. Yeah. <laughs> yes, just never, never go in there. That place is fucked up. Uh, I, now I want to go to Mississippi just to see if this story has made it through the, the, the wild. Like in, totally. in lore. <laughs> yes. Don't fuck with New Yorkers in the fugitive, apparently. They get no, mad. No. <laughs> and then and then I wound up having a second failed screening experience oh, of the fugitive. How Again, is this possible? A 35 millimeter print. Mm. It wasn't as egregious as the, the this situation because it wasn't that someone vandalized the print. It was that the projector kept dying. And I don't know if that's because dying. they, you know. You got to use something different for film than you use for a, a digital projection, right. right? And these things get old and then they don't, you know, change the bulbs or whatever. And this thing just kept failing. Like it would, you'd be watching it and then all oh. and then the light would go out and then the theater lights would come up oh, no. and it did it like three times. And this was a gift from my son for Christmas. He said, dad, I want to take oh. you to your favorite movie. And so he took oh, me to no. The Fugitive and we sat there and uh, had that happen three times. And then I turned to him and I said, 
it's okay. We can go home and watch it. It's on HBO. (laughs) (laughs) That is. I was still pretty furious. So sad. What a sad story that is. Your son's Christmas gift to you. The thing that you love to do the most. Go to the movies. Watch this movie. And it was ruined by a 35 millimeter uh, projector. Yeah. But we, it does bring us to Dr. Nichols, who we should talk about for a second. <laughs> First of all, the fact that this this Dutch guy, uh, who's a great actor, I love this guy, and, and, the, and he, there's of course he would have gotten selected because if you look at like his IMDb, he was just always popping up in the in the late '80s, early '90s, yeah. and so they had an actor who then got had a fatal brain tumor and mm. play, you know, he had to uh, leave the set after he'd already shot a bunch of scenes, mm-hmm. uh, but. Uh, they they go and they get this guy, uh, Yeroen Krabby, I think is how he says his name, although I'm not entirely sure. Uh, I just call him Dr. Nichols whenever yes. I see him. Uh, we also, my, my, I used to call him, even before he was known as Dr. Nichols, when he would pop up in things, I would call him the model because he reminded me of Rick the Model Martel. So oh, I would see him good. in movies yeah. and be like, oh, look, it's the model. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> but but uh, but yeah. So Doctor Nichols is is you know this guy jumps into the role. He's great. He you know he plays the part great. He's slimy enough and uh, but yeah. but you know in, and insincere enough. But the thing that I can never get over about Doctor Nichols, <laughs> what's that? Is this guy is a sick fuck. He is a <laughs> sicker fuck than Hannibal Lecter, than <laughs> than Leatherface. And you know why? Why? Because if you go watch that scene when Tommy Lee Jones and Joey Pants come to interrogate him, Dr. Nichols is sitting there and on the desk behind him is a picture of him and Dr. Richard Kimball taking the night when Dr. Nichols arranged to have Richard Kimball's wife killed and Richard Kimball framed for murder. So yep. he knows he did that. <laughs> He is pretending that he didn't. And meanwhile, every day he goes into his office and he looks at that picture and he's like, yeah, I yeah. know what I fucking did right there. 100% was the orb that crushed her skull not available? Like, just unbelievable. Well, it's also, I think basically, too, he was probably planning to have Richard killed, right? Like, that's, yes. the, like, that's the, the thing. He didn't know that's that Richard thing. was going to get a phone call and go back to the, to the place. So, so they thought that we were going to kill Richard. Yeah. Just like he was going to kill Lentz. Instead, the wife is brutally murdered, and yes. Richard is going to be put to death. That's like, and 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 his entire legacy is that he's a wife killer now, right? Not a vascular surgeon. The the actual thing that Doctor Nichols planned to do to kill these two doctors now it's way worse. Like it was a <laughs> totally much stuck. more horrible thing that happened, and he's yeah. still like, uh, you know what I'd like. I'd like to be reminded that I did that shit every single day when I go to my office. I'm going to sit in my swivel desk and I'm just going to look at that picture. <laughs> I ruined a guy's life and just murdered a woman. I mean, that and is... And now he's going to be put to death. Yes. Like he's, he's, he's on death row. That guy is a psychopath. Yes, you're <laughs> totally right. He has a picture, a framed picture of that night. Oh, chilling, honestly. Really chilling okay so on to the best thing we saw in wrestling this week and now you know you should know something about me and chris doing this show 
we don't talk about this ahead of time. Like, we want to kind of surprise each other with what our best thing in wrestling is. And we really don't, like, talk about, like, what we're going to do on the show other than topic-wise. Hey, we'll talk about The Fugitive a little bit. We'll talk about The Montreal Screwjob. Okay, got it. Like, I don't want to, we don't want to burn our ideas talking to each other. And this week, we both said, oh, well, we've got to talk about this one thing. And I said, well, yeah, I'm going to talk about it, but Here's the thing. It's my best thing in wrestling this week. And shirt brother, I Chris, you, your response was that I was your shirt brother and that you had it as your best thing in wrestling this week, too, which is important for us to note because it's not actually something that was produced by any wrestling company. No, but the best thing in wrestling that I saw this past week was the Alabama waterfront brawl. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, just Google those three words. Uh, it also means you have not been on social media for a week, and God bless you. But uh, <laughs> the, the reality is this was basically wrestling at its core, at its most fundamental. The Alabama waterfront brawl was professional wrestling. Uh, and I'm interested for you, Chris, why it to you was your uh, best thing in wrestling you saw this week. Oh, my God. Well, first of all, the version that I saw initially of the brawl had a shit ton of wrestling commentary and music. There was there was mm -hmm. someone uh, doing commentary. I, I, I want to say his name. I, I, I don't. It's like uh, uh, Mike or Mick Tyson. So <laughs> I watched his commentary and there were Nation of Domination references, Survivor and Royal Rumble uh, callouts, Ultimate Warrior and Stone Cold Steve Austin music. The person doing commentary, you are just fantastic. I need you to do commentary on more stuff. I'm following them on on uh, on Twitter now. I, I, I love him. He is just fantastic. But what what it is is. Just a bunch of white people on a dock in Alabama, uh, and they're jumping a black person. And then heroic black people uh, who, who jumped and swam to save this person. And it, it's, it's quite literally as good as the Fugitive Train scene, and it is most definitely <laughs> the best thing I saw this week. Well, here's the thing. All that, everything you said is true. And I, I also did wind up seeing that same thing, a uh, guy named Corey, who did the commentary over this. And it's hilarious. And he definitely made a lot of allusions to wrestling. But I, I think it's more than those surface level connections with wrestling. Sure. I think it explains wrestling. Mm, tell me and more. And here's why. Because, okay, the reality, what happened in this, here, here, let, me, let, me, let me start it by saying this. The first thing I saw about this waterfront brawl was somebody clipped out a video and it was like the part where everyone is brawling right in front of the big boat, the river boat. And it just looks terrible, like a terrible brawl. And every now and then you see this kind of stuff on social media where people are like luxuriating in terrible violence. And I fucking hate it. Like totally. the, the worst of humanity getting summed up and like, right. you know, then, then it gets put on Fox news and it's, like, yes. I, I, I had no patience for this scrolling past. Right. What just looked like a terrible brawl right. to me. And I, I want to know part of it. Then I saw somebody put up a video that was just, the first five minutes before any punch was thrown mm. and you see everything that happens with these boats. And what happened was this river boat was trying to dock. It could not for like multiple minutes. It was trying to dock. Exactly. And 
this crew member on the riverboat takes a small vessel to the dock and is trying. Apparently, they had told these white people that were in these pontoons that they had to move the boats and the white people were just ignoring them. Now they're drunk. They're, mm-hmm. they're, they look all sunburnt. They've been out for the day on the water. Like these are, these are people who are not going to be agreeable. Forget about the racial dynamics in Alabama. They were not going to be agree- agreeable probably to anyone. But then this black crew member goes over there and he's trying to move the boat himself. And that is apparently what starts the ruckus. And you're watching this guy and he's like defending himself, but he's clearly just pointing to the boat telling them to move them. Never once do you watch this guy posture in any way that he's threatening to these people. Right. Like, he is one million percent in the right. Just trying to do his job. What, what, Just trying to do his job. That's right. You know? Just trying to do his yeah. job. So if you're watching this, I don't care what color you are. Mm-hmm. Unless you're a stone-cold racist, <laughs> you're like, well, this guy's right, and these people are already wrong. Yes. Right? Before a single punch is thrown. Then... Some fucking dude (laughs) runs from the pontoon and sucker punches this guy, this crew member. And then multiple other dudes who were with that guy come and jump the crew guy as well. To the point where you can count heads, it's six on one. Whether they're all six throwing punches at the guy or not, it's six on one. And at that point, you start to see a black dude come down the ramp. You start to Mm -hmm. see the guy jump in the water and swim after him. And somehow it gets evened up. There (laughs) are at least six black dudes suddenly (laughs) on that pier. And I thought to myself, this is what war games is. Like the yes. whole premise of war games is that the baby faces are at a disadvantage until the time interval ends. And then when they have the, the evened odds, the baby faces can win. And that is wrestling in a nutshell, <laughs> yes. because the whole idea is like people have been watching fights since the moment you could clench a fist, mm-hmm. right? Since the moment evolution occurred where you could make a fist and punch a person, <laughs> everyone wanted to watch that, right? And that's a human impulse. It's not going to go away. And one of the things that happened was like combat sports were invented because people like to watch that. Right. It goes back to primitive cultures. They were doing that. And then in modern culture, we had sports around combat, boxing and martial arts, all of that kind of stuff. Somewhere along the line, somebody figured out if we manipulate these combats, we can make it so people are watching and paying us money because their emotions get invested in this. It's not just a random thing where a guy fights another guy. It has to have an emotional reason behind it. Well, you watch this video of these white guys in Alabama (laughs) jump a black guy who's just doing his job. You know who the good guy and who the bad guys are right away. And you also know that with this guy being outnumbered, well, he's in trouble. Yeah. But as soon as the odds are even, (laughs) the bad guys flee. Yes. They run away. And you know what happens (laughs) when they run away? They still get their asses beat. Yes. (laughs) And that is what would happen if Bobby the Brain Heenan started running up the aisle because all of his cheating backfired. Then some guy would grab him and throw him back in and Hulk Hogan would kick his ass. That's right. That is 
The core of wrestling, the core of wrestling <laughs> is when it's an unfair fight, the bad guys win because they're bad. But right. when the fight is even, the good guys win because they're good. <laughs> and I have never seen something so clearly represented in the wild as this, where you're like, well, I am pissed right now because I'm watching bad guys be bad and yep. they are outnumbering this dude and winning. And wait a minute. Oh, hang on. The fight is now even game on good guys win, right? Like so clear that this was wrestling. Was that sarsaparilla? Sioux City sarsaparilla? Oh, wow. No. <laughs> no. It's, uh, it's just water. I got oh, all right. With Sorry. With a little For... WTF thing on it. <laughs> the, the, the outline looked, it made it look like a, a beer bottle. So I was like, oh, mm. it must be a sarsaparilla. That's a big beer bottle. <laughs> Wait a minute. What? <laughs> why, why, if it looks like a beer bottle, must it be sarsaparilla? <laughs> A, it's one thirty. Well, that's fine, but there's like five <laughs> things before sarsaparilla, I would think. Also, sarsaparilla is just a, a delightful thing to it's say. It's a nice thing to say. It, and it, to drink. Yes, but it, it tickles the tongue, you know? Yeah. Uh, I, I always loved sarsaparilla when I was a kid. <laughs> sarsaparilla gets so much play right now. It's yeah. so fun. <laughs> I, I, I was partial to cream soda myself. Oh, me too. Yes. But the sarsaparilla was rare. Like you didn't mm-hmm. get it very often. Yeah. Yeah. You get but, it at like a restaurant. Or, or when, I, when I grew up, you'd go into a general store. Like <laughs> yes, that's, yes. Where, that's where they had them. What a strange name for a store. Like, general. Uh, yeah. I don't know. Do you have a specialty? Not really. <laughs> just, just general stuff. <laughs> It's the general store. <laughs> Weren't very inventive or like just specific back then. Yeah. You're just like, ah, it's just generally a good store. A good <laughs> but store. no, no, no. There's no value judgment either. It's the general store. Could be good or bad. Doesn't matter. Right. It, just, it, it generally has what you need. Yeah, they weren't ad men. <laughs> yeah. Well, but th- what's funny is there were uh, must have been other stores around the general store that were not general. And so the general store was like, whoa, go to that one. They're more it. likely to have it. Yeah. Also, like, I see an opening. There's no general store. <laughs> There's a specialty store for like. Oh, so many of those. Yeah. There's one for your horse's shoes. There's yeah. one for uh, a guy who makes tombstones. But general. <laughs> I also like it, the the idea that you know it's just a store for generals, <laughs> right? Like, sir, I'm sorry, are you a private? What? Do no, you there's another one. It's a private store down the street. <laughs> Why is this so stupid and funny? Uh, all right, well, that was recorded at least, so that's good. Yeah, sure. <laughs> There you go. The Friday show is available exclusively for Full Marin subscribers every week. To hear all the Full Marin bonus episodes and get every WTF episode ad-free, subscribe by clicking the link in the episode description. Just click on it in whatever podcast player you're using right now. Or sign up at WTFpod.com by clicking WTF+. Plus. See you on Thursday for episode 1500. 
of WTF.